everybody, and welcome to The Scriptures Are Real. I am your host, our co-host, Lamar Newmeyer, and I have with me Carrie Muelstein, who you've seen before on this channel. Uh, hi, Lamar. How you doing, Carrie? Good, good. How are you? <laughs> we, I'm doing well. We're, we're miles apart, but we're close in, this, in, this, our, in our technological way. We're, we're close by. <laughs> yep. All well, I'm, today we are discussing the Book of Abraham. We're going to be talking about the Old Testament this year. And part of that Old Testament actually begins in the Pearl of Great Price, which uh, discusses the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham. So yeah. Kerry has, uh, has some expertise in this area. He's spent a lot of time over in the Middle East and Jerusalem and areas surrounding there and Egypt, of course, and has quite a bit of knowledge about this. So let me ask you, Kerry, if we're talking about the Book of Abraham, can you tell me if I was I'm, I'm sitting in our regular gospel doctrine class and i say where did the book of abraham come from did it was it parchment that somebody found was it already in there was it did joe smith just receive the revelation how does that uh, how does the book of abraham come about uh it's a, it's a great question uh and uh one that i wish we had a simple answer to we can i mean there is a simple answer the simple answer is uh it came from god so that's the simple answer, okay, but yeah. <laughs> uh, a little more complex than that. And, uh, you know, for like a just gospel doctrine class, I wish it were simple. But as a researcher, I kind of love the complexity. It's given me things to puzzle over and, and chase down, feeling like Sherlock Holmes sleuth kind of stuff uh, for a couple of decades now. So um, let's, let's Wait, do just a little I, bit. Of, yeah, let me ask you a question for that, because I want to set the stage kind of I, – I, if if I were just starting at the the we're we're in the class and it's Old Testament, where did the Old Testament come from? Do we have the actual scrolls, tablets, clay tablets, cuneiform? Anyway, do we have anything that we that existed from the Old Testament? That is a great question because it does overlap with the, the how we got great. the Book of Abraham, and it's important right. to understand uh, we don't have like what we would call the autograph copy, which means the copy written by whoever is the original author for right. really any of our books of scripture, except for some of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. We do have that first original one uh, that was dictated by Joseph Smith for a number of sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, but not even for all of those. Um, but we certainly don't have it for the Book of Mormon, right? The gold plates, we don't have those. Uh, we don't have it for the New Testament. We've got copies that are a hundred and something years uh, old at the earliest, several, actually, I, I'm not an expert in the New Testament one, but but we're looking at centuries before we get the earliest copies. Old Testament is the same thing. So just as an example, the, um, the earliest version of the book of Isaiah that we have is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we right. have a version, it's called the Great Isaiah Scroll, and it's from about 200 B.C., well, uh, Isaiah starts writing in around 750 BC. Right. Uh, and back. so we're like 200. He writes for a long time. So 200, 250 years, or I mean, sorry, 500 to 550 years later that we're getting uh, the earliest copy we have of Isaiah's writing. It still was what Isaiah wrote, but what we have is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And surely that's what happens with Joseph Smith and, and the book of Abraham um, is that he receives a copy of a copy. If it's if it is that, so let me let me explain it. It's a little okay. like I said, it's a little bit complicated. What happens is um, it, to to give kind of the earlier, or uh, I don't know how to say this. To give uh, there are lots of phases of this story. So just uh, as an example, I have a book coming out uh, explaining the Book of Abraham and some of its doctrines and answering questions people have about it. It's it's actually just hitting the, the shelves right now at the end of December 2021. Um, and it's just a short little readable book trying to help walk people through it. And the first part of the book, I call the stories with an S, right? You mm. can't just do the story of the book of Abraham. It's stories, plural, because there's so many stories. So there's the story of Abraham himself. Um, there's the story of how did his writings get transmitted. We're going to jump in with the, uh, if for us, it's old, but in that comparison, really kind of recent history, which is how did the papyri get to America? Um, the short version of this is that when Napoleon invades Egypt um, in, in the, at the end of the 1700s, I think he invades in 1798, if I remember right, uh, that no one, it's controlled by the Ottoman Empire. No Westerners uh, have been there in great numbers. You get the occasional explorer or two, 
but really hardly anyone has been hardly anywhere in Egypt for a long time. But Napoleon invades, and suddenly this is opened up to Westerners from all over the place. Uh, the British ally with the Ottomans to kick the French out because the British and the French are always trying to kick each other out of as many places <laughs> as they can and right. take over as many places as they can. But uh, they kick them out. But this just kind of opens it up to lots of Westerners coming in. The French and the British instead start to compete for who can get the coolest collections out of Egypt. Right. So this is when you get like the, the collection in the Louvre is coming and the British Museum and the Berlin Museum and the Turin Museum and all these things. Um, so some of the guys that are working for the, the French are actually a bunch of Italians. And one of them is a fellow named Antonio Leblo. And he's collecting stuff down in Thebes. Uh, and a lot of times we talk about him finding these things. And I've even heard people talk about finding it in Pit Tomb 33 uh oh wow or 32 the the reason we we have no idea where he finds it and i'm not even sure he's the one who actually found them the only reason we say that is that he carved his name in in one of those tombs and so well we know he was there so that's the most likely candidate of the 700 likely candidates uh which means we're up to like a three percent chance that's it or something like that (laughs) okay but um because what happens is he's, he's finding some stuff himself but he also has all sorts of the locals are realizing that that the these Italians uh, who are working for the French will pay money for this, and so they're just going through uh, their anything they can find and bringing it to them. And so most of his stuff is actually found by locals, and he doesn't even know where it comes from. Uh, so I, I, he may have found this stuff himself, but it's probably something that uh, a local Egyptian found and brought to him. In any case, he's uh, selling for a while. They're not employed by the French. There's a short period where they're not employed by the French, and they support themselves by just selling antiquities themselves. And so Labelo has a group of mummies and papyri, 11 mummies and uh, a couple scrolls and some other fragments of papyri that he's going to sell, and he's shipping it home. And he dies uh, before he sells these. So his, Tell me again what year about we're talking about this year. That, so uh, it's happening somewhere around 1820. We, we know 1820, he's there and working on things. We don't know exactly when he finds this stuff, maybe a little before, maybe a little after, but it's within a year or so of 1820. Okay, so just for context, Napoleon invades in 1798. This is only 22 years after the actual invasion that e- Egyptologists or the beginnings of Egypt are being discovered. They're unearthing these tombs and so forth. And yeah. so it's not very, not very long a time. It's just only 20 years or so. Yeah, and, and uh, at that point, I mean, they started sending stuff out more quickly than that. That's just when, so uh, Leblo and the guy he's working for, a guy named Drovetti, these are Italians who uh, supported Napoleon, so it's not actually so comfortable for them to go back to Italy when Napoleon's not so popular anymore. He's been deposed. Yeah, yeah so, so they stay in Egypt and they work. And, okay. um, and they, they work for a number of years for the French government. And then, as I said, they have a while where they don't. So this is after they've had kind of a mini career working for the French. Now they're doing a mini career on their own. So uh, so the, the exports started happening pretty, like really soon after the wars okay. died down between the French and the British. Um, but yeah, we're about 20 years later, 22 years later, by the time this stuff is being found. Right. Okay. All right. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just thought no. I'm trying to get in my head that the timeline straight. This isn't very long a time. Napoleon's not very, is very close to Joseph Smith's time. People don't realize that maybe. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly okay. right. So, and I find it interesting that it's probably right about when the Lord is speaking to Joseph Smith that Lablo is finding these papyri. And you can just see the hand of the Lord just working masterfully, bringing all sorts of things together all over the place so that when we need it, it's available and ready. Right. Um, kind of reminds me of, you know, he prompts Mormon to uh, record the or write on these little small plates of Nephi and include them. Uh, with this larger collection long before we needed it. But there it is when we needed it, it's ready, right? So, yeah, it's got an extra thing. Right, okay. Yeah, so Lablo yeah. is Lablo's, um, excavating over there. He writes the name on the wall of the tomb. Um, and, yeah, and uh, on a temple column just for the fun of it. But anyway, well, yeah. Let's not do that. Let's not yeah. graffiti up. <laughs> okay, yeah. all right. So then he's he has excavating. So, okay, go ahead. Uh, so his wife, because he's passed away, his wife just uh, hires a shipping company to sell the stuff. And they send it to New York. So this is the first large collection of Egyptian antiquities to arrive in the U.S. Uh, they've had, uh, we think that there was, uh, as, as far as we can tell, there was a collection of one mummy and a collection of two mummies that have come through before. But this is 11 mummies and, and a bit of papyrus fragments. So it comes to the U.S. 
And uh, it's being shown and from town to town as people are taking it around and they, they set it up as displays in um, hotel lobbies and charge people 25 cents to come and see them. Uh, somewhere along the line, a fellow named Michael Chandler gets involved. He will later claim to be Labelo's nephew and that he inherited them and he got them in the beginning. Uh, he's not Labelo's nephew. It seems like we don't know for sure, but it seems like he doesn't get involved until they've been in the U.S. for a few years. And it's not even clear whether he ever owned them or not. He may have just been acting for the owners. We can't tell any of that, okay. uh, partially because he's making up this story and we don't know why. But something about these papyri tends to make people make up stories. But anyway, um, <laughs> so we get um, Chandler, who at, at some point uh, has been commissioned by either himself, if he owns them, or it seems uh, more likely that he's working for someone else. Um, and he is, uh, after they've kind of made the money they're going to make, he starts selling these things off. Uh, the mummies are getting sold off piece or, you know, mummy at a time or a couple of mummies at a time until he's down to just four mummies. So there were 11 mummies to begin with. He's down to four mummies um, and uh, two rolls and uh, some other fragments. He may have had more papyrus than that to begin with, but this is what he has in 1835. So in July of 1835, um, because someone has told him that Joseph Smith might be interested in something Egyptian, he right. travels to Kirtland. Uh, and shows Joseph Smith the mummies and papyri. And Joseph Smith feels prompted to buy those papyri, and he uh, uh, is able to translate them by the gift and power of God. But that, that brings us then to what is the actual source of the Book of Abraham? And, and we really don't know. Uh, and, and it's integrally tied into the question of uh, how does Joseph Smith translate the Book of Abraham? Right. So, so let's look, yeah. yeah. So pause there for just a second. So when you open up the book of Abraham, if you're opening up a paper version, you're going to see three pictures there. We call them facsimiles. Yeah. There's three pictures in there. Um, one, two of them are square. The first one is a square one. The second one is a square one. And the, the number two one is a circle. Yeah. And um, so, but just clarify for everybody, those, those pictures or those uh, the facsimiles are not where we get the text for the book of Abraham, correct? Right. Well, that, that is right. Um, although that one of them, facsimile one, may where people have thought it's tied up with it. So that that's exactly okay. right. Let's. Um, uh, so facsimile one and facsimile three were on the same papyrus roll. We can tell that just by some of the text that's with them. Facsimile two was not on a roll at all. It was a separate document. It was just a standalone document, a, a square of papyrus that was not intended to be part of the roll. Um, and that's important to know if we're going to ask what was the source and, and, and uh, how is uh, Joseph Smith translating. All right. So to understand how he's translating, unfortunately, uh, Joseph Smith never gives us a good account of any of his translation processes. Right. He tells us uh, what he tells us about the Book of Mormon is it was by the gift and power of God and everything we know about uh, plates. And well, I mean, he tells us a little bit about the plates, but that when it comes to the translation process, the use of the place, the use of the Urim and Thummim and the seer stone that he has, the Urim and Thummim are seer stones and this other seer stone he has, uh, we get all of that from scribes. Joseph doesn't tell us. Um, and, and it's the same with the book of Abraham. Uh, he doesn't really tell us anything about how he gets that. So everything we get, we get from other people. But he does say he's he's translating from scrolls, right? He has he talks physical scrolls. Okay. Yeah, he does talk about the scrolls. That's exactly right. But let's to understand it and contextualize this. Let's look at his other translation projects. Okay. So the first one is the Book of Mormon, right? And the Book of Mormon, he's got this text in a language he doesn't know, and he's translating it into a language he does know. So that's not usually what we think of as translation. Translation is usually you know both languages and you take it from one to the other, right? Right, right. Uh -huh. But Joseph doesn't know the original language. He does have it written on a physical object, right? The gold plates. Plates. Uh -huh. But it would seem that as often as not, he's not actually looking at the gold plates. He's looking in the seer stone or in the Urim and Thummim and, and the plates are sitting on the table and he's not looking at them. I'm not sure how often he could point to the plates and say, this is what I'm translating from right now. I just don't know. <clears throat> but in any case, he, he translates from these plates uh, from a language into another language. So that's one translation process. Okay. The, yeah. 
The next one is the, what we call the Joseph Smith translation. He called it the new translation of the Bible. And in that one, he's sitting down with an English version of the Bible, and he is giving us an English translation. But the translation, so that's not how we'd usually think of translation, right? Because it's going from English to English. But the translation, the version he's giving us, has a bunch of material in it that's not in the original. He's just receiving that as pure revelation from heaven. And that's the book of Moses, right? Like footnotes and corrections, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes it's footnotes and corrections, but sometimes it's just huge chunks of new material. Oh, yeah, That's Matthew. what the book of Moses, well, and, and, and in Genesis, the book of Moses is the Joseph Smith translation of the first part of Genesis. Well, that's a good begin. point. We, we, yeah, we should have probably started there, too, because if you're following along with Come Follow Me, you'll start with Moses. If you're reading through the Pearl of Great Price, Moses is first. And that has no scrolls attached to it. There's no scrolls or anything. That's just what you were just saying is it comes from him translating Genesis and he gets a separate revelation that expands on Genesis. Yeah. He has no text at all for that. It's just coming as pure revelation. As he looks at the Bible, the Bible serves as a catalyst, as it were. He looks at the Bible and it opens him up. To, uh, to, it catalyzes or gets him to think about and open his mind up to inspiration, and then God gives him this revelation that's all this text that God wants us to have, that at some point was originally in a text that was written down, but it doesn't seem to exist any longer. Uh, fortunately, God can give it to us without it existing, right? So the, the, the King James Version stand, uh, serves as a catalyst to Joseph receiving revelation that we need. Okay, all right. And so going back to, I, I didn't mean to derail you, but we got so on that's moses how moses and that's without scrolls or anything but now right. we actually do have scrolls for abraham which he translates from and people say they have seen the scrolls i think i remember a um a uh, uh an account from oliver cowdery where he said the scroll stretched from one room and like down the hallway or into another room uh, kind of thing Maybe yeah you tell me about that Sure. So um, there are lots of accounts of people who see the scrolls, and Oliver Cowdery is one of the earliest. He's working with Joseph Smith immediately on them. Lots and lots of accounts of, of the scrolls. The one you're talking about is actually kind of a later second-hand account. Um, we get um, uh, Hugh Nibley's uncle, Preston Nibley, goes on a mission with Joseph F. Smith, and they stop in Nauvoo, and they, they're at the mansion house. But we get this from um, from Hugh Nibley, who gives it to us from Preston Nibley, who gives it to us from Joseph F. Smith. So, okay. right, you, you, you have to kind of just take these with increasingly a grain of salt each degree you get removed from the primary uh, or eyewitness account. The right? account, yeah. But, um, but this account says that uh, there are two different uh, ways that Joseph F. Smith talked about it. He says he remembers his uh, uncle sitting uh, at a desk with the... Um, the papyri weighed down by, by books and things, taking up the whole desk because he studied it. And he also says he remembers it uh, going through an entire, one roll unrolled, going through an entire room, right? Um, and and uh, so this, this would be a pretty long scroll if, uh, if those accounts are accurate. Now, we, I, I, I'm inclined to think that they are, but as a historian, you always have to take third-hand accounts that are coming sure. out right when the, there's a hot question about it. Uh, you have to just kind of take them with some degree of caution, but I, I suspect that that is accurate. Um, one way or another, we know that Joseph has lots of scrolls, and uh, or he has he has papyri that he's translating from so several fragments in these two rolls, and um, he talks about translating from those rolls. So the most likely source, and we'll get into a minute exactly where on the papyrus, but the most likely source for the Book of Abraham would be the papyri rolls, because that's what Joseph Smith talks about them being on. Um, and so uh, we call that, and, and I'll get into why we call that uh, the missing papyrus theory later, but we call it the missing papyrus theory. Uh, just the short answer is that that large scroll ends up being burned in uh, the Great Chicago Fire. Chicago so we don't Fire, have yeah, the museum. Scroll. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we call that the missing papyrus theory. But there is another theory. Well, there are several other theories, but there's another theory that's fairly prevalent, um, that uh, we should also take into account. And that's what we call the, the catalyst theory. And the idea is that Joseph Smith may be uh, looking at these papyrus scrolls, and it and it's, works more like the Joseph Smith translation, 
where he of the Bible, uh, where he looks at the scroll and that opens him up for inspiration. And he receives a revelation of a text that was written by Abraham that's actually not on the scrolls. And he assumes it is because he's getting this inspiration as he looks at the scrolls, but it may not be there at all. He's just receiving inspiration and, uh, and writing it down. Um, and we have some evidence for that. Just uh, in uh, there are a couple little bits of evidence. Well, really one primarily. And that is um, he talks about working on the alphabet and grammar with Oliver Cowdery and W.W. Phelps and the principles of astronomy unfold to them. Well, that sounds like a revelatory experience. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's, that, that, uh, that seems quite revelatory. And it may be some of both, right? That there's text actually on the scroll. And it may be that, um, that it's, uh, he's, as he's doing that, sometimes he gets revelation for other things. Maybe it's the explanation of the facsimiles or something like that. I don't know. Um, so there may be a text on the scrolls, which would be the missing papyrus theory. And, and there may be that it's just a, the papyrus is a catalyst to revelation, which would be called the catalyst theory. Oh, very good. All right. So just, so we have scrolls and, and the facsimile. Now, do we have the facsimiles anymore? We have the original of facsimile one. Um, and uh, so let's, that, that brings us to another really important point. Uh, so to give the brief history of these scrolls, um, Joseph has those scrolls. He has several fragments. It seems like he cut some uh, pieces of papyrus off of the scrolls he had and mounted them under glass, uh, glued them to paper, mounted them under glass to protect them. In any case, he has several that he does that with. When he dies, his mother, who had already been supporting herself by um, showing people the papyri and the mummies, she kind of maintains control of these, and she continues to charge people to come see the papyri and mummies and support herself that way. When Lucy Mack Smith dies, then Joseph's widow, Emma Smith, um, maintains control of them, and she sells them two weeks later uh, to a man named Abel Combs. And Abel Combs sells the scrolls and the mummies. And at this point, he's selling two mummies. We don't know what happened to the other two mummies. So, uh, you know, if you, so there, there were four mummies total at the beginning. Yeah, when Joseph Smith had them. Uh, do we so know there how were many 11 to begin were? with, uh, but then we get to only four by the time we get to Joseph Smith. And then two is what we have record of being sold to museums. So I don't know where the other two are. I hope that someone finds them in, in their grandmother's <laughs> attic. But um, <laughs> how many scrolls were there? Do we know that? They talk about two scrolls. So we don't know how many there were originally, but by the time Joseph Smith gets them, there's a larger scroll and a shorter scroll, both of which seem to be fairly large because they've got quite a bit of writing on them. Um, right. uh, there are all sorts of ways we can test that. It's a long, complicated thing we can get into later if we want. But they're, uh, by all accounts, they're fairly sizable scrolls. So um, uh, Abel Combs sells those and two mummies to the St. Louis Museum. The St. Louis Museum sells them to... Uh, Chicago, a museum in Chicago, the Chicago Museum gets bought by a guy named Wood. It's called the Wood Museum. And then that museum burns in the Great Chicago Fire. And the catalog, uh, the catalog of what they had before the fire, you've got the scrolls in there and the mummies, the catalog of what survives, they're not in there. Both mummies and papyri are very, very flammable. And uh, so we just can uh, be sure that they burned in that fire. And for a long time, we thought that was all of the papyri. But it turns out Abel Combs had given some mounted fragments to his housekeeper, Charlotte Weaver. And Charlotte Weaver gave them to her daughter, whose married name is Alice Huser. And she tried to sell them to the Metropolitan Museum of uh, New York. They weren't interested at the time, but later on, they are interested. And they contact her and end up working with her son and purchasing the papyri uh, through her son. And, um, and then they actually kind of sit on them for about 20 years because they recognize immediately, oh, these are the papyri that Joseph Smith owned. There are some stories that they didn't know and so on. Again, for some reason, people get making up stories with this, but uh, there are, uh, uh, it's clear we have internal memos from them. They recognize what they have. And there's a little bit of a controversy about the book of Abraham going on at the time, and they just don't want to get involved. So they sit on them waiting for the opportunity to interact with the church in some way. And that opportunity comes in 1967. So they buy them in 1947. And uh, in 1967, there's an Egyptian scholar who uh, is a professor at the University of Utah named Aziz Atiyah, who is doing research 
in the Metropolitan Museum of New York or the Met. And, um, and he's looking at some of the stuff they have not on display and he sees facsimile one. Um, and he recognizes this as being some of the papyri that Joseph Smith owned. Um, they've got the receipt from Emma Smith. I mean, uh, they're on the back of some of these are plans for the, either the Kirtland or the independence temple, right? That paper oh, wow. they're glued to, we're, we're sure the, these are the real deal. Right. Um, so he, uh, he happens to have a connection with an Eldon Tanner, who's a member of the first presidency. And so he serves as kind of the broker as the go between to, uh, get the Met and the church talking about these things. And then the Met um, gifts the, the papyri fragments to the church, 10 fragments. And the church at that point realizes, oh, this other thing we have in our vaults, we didn't know what it was. This is another one of the fragments. Now that we see those, we recognize what it is. So they have 11 fragments. The, one of the fragments that ends up being numbered fragment one is the original that has um, facsimile one on it. Facsimile one is a facsimile of the drawing that is on Joseph Smith Papyrus one. And so um, that, that is exciting for everyone. We have the original, plus there are, there's some text that surrounds that drawing. All right. So as Egyptologists, we call those drawings vignettes. There's some, there's some text that surrounds that vignette. So everyone assumed, ah, that's the source of the book of Abraham. And we couldn't translate it in Joseph Smith's day, but by now we can translate it. And so we, we look at this and we translate it. And it turns out to be a fairly common Egyptian funerary document called the Book of Breathings. And uh, so people who are enemies of the church are exultant. Ha ha, we've proved that Joseph Smith is not a prophet. And people who were, uh, uh, you know, believed in Joseph Smith as a prophet said, okay, wait, there's something going on here. The problem is everyone was working on an assumption. They just assumed, and it's a natural assumption. They assumed that the text that was adjacent to facsimile one was the source. That's what Joseph Smith was translating from. That's a reasonable assumption. But if we don't recognize it as an assumption, which most people didn't, and we don't test it, then it's, it's really a presumption and it never becomes a theory or a hypothesis. And, and uh, then we're just involved in bad scholarship, right? Right. So if we test it, we can take this theory and test it. And there are several different ways you can test it. Uh, uh, one is to look at contemporary papyri and say, is the text always next to the drawing it's associated with? And the answer is no, quite frequently not. So that way of testing, it says, well, that may or may not be a good theory. Um, and then uh, second, well, a hypothesis will say, so it may or may not be a good hypothesis. Um, second one is to uh, say, does the text have anything to say about it? And actually in the book of Abraham, verse chapter one, verse 12 and 14, it's, it refers you to the drawing and it says, we refer you to the drawing at the beginning of the record. And this is text that's right there at the beginning. Right. So that suggests that the drawing is some ways away. There's some, something more to the record and the, and the drawing is some distance. Can't say that for sure, but that way of testing it suggests that probably this hypothesis is incorrect. It does seem consistent with the way Joseph, or the way but the book of Abraham says, look back at the drawing yeah, like yeah. you just said, the drawing. Okay. Um, the third way of testing this would be to look at the eyewitness accounts. And so I spent years gathering all the eyewitnesses uh, that I could, all the accounts of anyone who saw it and heard anything about it. We've got tons of accounts, uh, and I'm working on publishing those, but um, there are only a few that actually saw these things and, and heard something about what Joseph Smith was translating from. And they're not uh, perfectly clear in every case and so on, but, but really they all agree that he's translating from the long roll. Um, and this is, and they're all after we, we can date when that fragment that has facsimile one glued to paper, when it was glued to that paper. And so it's certainly not part of a roll. Um, and all of these, so that's probably the end of 1837, beginning of 1838, somewhere in that winter is, is where that seems to have happened. Um, and, uh, all of these accounts that talk about Joseph translating from the long roll are after that. So our third way of testing this, the actual eyewitnesses, the historical documents, the people who saw this tell us that, that he's not translating from that text right next to facsimile one. They, well, they tell us he's, he's translating from something else. So the third way of translating or of testing this hypothesis uh, invalidates the hypothesis. We now know that that assumption was a, a bad assumption was reasonable to make, but it was bad. It was incorrect. That's not what he's translating from. So that's part of where we get to this idea where we don't know what the source is because we don't have the source. It's either this missing papyrus right, or the papyrus was a catalyst 
through receiving inspiration or revelation, which is uh, uh, something that would you have to kind of assume okay or if that's accurate then you you know joseph smith had made an assumption and he's a little incorrect which i don't have a problem with i, I, I we're incorrect about all sorts of things that god doesn't sure. correct us on um and it works fairly well this idea of god uh, giving us something that serves as a catalyst to our receiving inspiration okay so i, I had an opportunity while i'm actually while i was going to byu with you you were in graduate and i was finishing off my undergrad and i was in one of your classes and uh, one of your research or a paper I wrote for you, I went to, I went to Hugh Nibley in the Harold B. Library. I had a chance to meet with him um, for an hour or so, and we talked about this very thing. And Hugh Nibley says that there are accounts that the actual Book of Abraham, the text of the Book of Abraham, comes from red writing. The, the writing was actually red in color, or the ink is red in color, which I believe is called rubrics. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Okay, so, so that's where the text comes from, but these facsimiles are, are different from, they're, they're in the whole group, but they're differently related to it. Yeah, and, and we've been able to refine that a little bit from uh, when, when Hugh was working on this. Um, so that comes from Oliver Cowdery, who, when he's talking about just all of the papyri in general, um, he talks about um, so, so some of the writing being uh, beautifully preserved and, and beautifully written in black with a small part red ink or paint. And he says in perfect preservation. Uh, and so okay. we've kind of assumed he's talking about the book of Abraham, although he's just talking about all of the writings in general. But we've since found um, someone, a fellow named William I. Appleby, who is talking with Joseph Smith. And, and he says that Joseph Smith shows him the writings of Joseph and the writings of Abraham, because uh, Joseph Smith says, we've got the writings of Joseph of Egypt and the writings of Abraham on these papyri. And... Um, and he never seems to get around to translating the writings of Joseph. I've heard all sorts of people with all sorts of rumors that, that he did, but we can't find anything we can substantiate. It seems like that never happened. In any case, uh, Appleby says that Joseph Smith is, is talking with him and that he shows him that the, the nicer writing, uh, so the scroll with the nicer writing with the red on it is the writings of Joseph. And the, the one that's less nice, uh, the scroll with the less nice writing that's just black is the writings of Abraham. Um, and so it would seem that the, that description by Oliver Cowdery is, uh, and Oliver Cowdery may not have realized it at the time, uh, because he's giving this just a few months after they've started working on it. That's a December 1835 description, and they started working on this in July of 1835. And so uh, he seems to be giving us the description of uh, the writings of Joseph of Egypt. Oh, okay, excellent. All right, so let's uh, summarize for those of you following along at home. The Old Testament written by Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, all these people, they write these things down. Then you have copies of copies of copies of copies that are later compiled into the Old Testament. Um, Christ has a copy. The Septuagint is part of that copy or part of those copies. Well, it's, yeah, it's a and translation then, of those. A translation. Of, yeah, because yeah, that's, yeah. that's from Hebrew into Greek, right? Right. And some other things, too. So then you have the New Testament, same thing. We have some copies of copies, although many more hundreds of years more recent still we have copies of copies of somewhere around 300 ad those things are compiled into what we now have as the bible they say okay here's this let's put this together here's what we have known as the bible there's a couple little things that they're not sure what to do with but that's the bible yeah so then we have joseph smith who comes along and he's like oh this is great the lord tells him there's some things missing he's doing some translation of course now we get the the, the book of uh, or, or, the book of mormon which comes from the golden plates he translates those. Then Moses, he's going mm -hmm. through. And Moses, he doesn't have any physical thing for it. It's just revelation that comes as part of his translation or as part of his reading through the Old Testament understanding and saying, hey, I have questions about this. He gets his revelations. Then we have the book of Abraham, which actually has physical text. There's some bits and pieces of fragments of, uh, of scrolls and things, or more than scrolls and also fragments yeah. that he then translates from. So that's what we have is the scriptures, not counting the Doctrine and Covenants, but yeah. that's what we have is the scriptures that were written by prophets anciently. Yeah, yeah. And again, I want to emphasize that we don't know for sure that it was written on that papyrus. I think that's the most right. likely thing, but it's, it's possible that it wasn't, that it, it uh, just was that catalyst. Well, I, I, I like what you said about the catalyst. That's a great word, catalyst, because some of these things that, that we receive, uh, revelation received, are are not necessarily related. Well, let me say it like this. So 
sometimes uh, Joseph Smith gets a, a revelation. Uh, he's reading James 1 5, you know, if any of you yeah. know, was like, and he has a kind of a, an epiphany like, hey, I can ask God. So that's a direct thing that comes from. But later on, like when he's translating the book of Moses, he doesn't have that in front of him, but something comes out of what he's reading. So, right. you know, you hear, you often hear, like, if you have a question, go to the scriptures. Well, I don't know that if you have a problem with with whatever modern thing, like I'm looking to have a problem at work and I can't get these employees to get along or whatever, that you're going to open the book of scripture and find the direct answer. That There's not an index that I know of that will take you to every answer in life. Right. But, the, but the theory, but the, but the idea is if you're searching the scriptures, when you're reading the words of God, it allows you to be in tune with that. And you sometimes get things that are direct related, like James one five, or you might get things open to your mind that are not exactly related to what you're reading, but you're in the, how would I say, into the conduit. You're in the conduit of revelation when you're reading these scriptures. They're a catalyst to receiving other answers about other things, maybe completely unrelated to the exact text you're reading, but might be related to the questions that you have. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's, that's really important and powerful. And that's one of the reasons we're focusing so much on the scriptures in this podcast, right? Because the scriptures right. are catalysts to communion with God, to revelation and inspiration. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, in fact, President Oaks has said that scriptures are not the ultimate source we go to um, to learn truth. They're the penultimate, which means the second to last, right? The, right. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Their, their point is that, and he says, if you, when you read the scriptures, then the spirit comes to you and teaches you what the scriptures are trying to teach you and, and can teach you other things. And that's the ultimate source of truth. Oh. Well, that's great. So the source of truth really is God. God is the source of truth. Yep. Through the Holy Ghost. Revealed to us through the Holy Ghost, right? right? Part of the Godhead. That's how we receive it. So it's when the, they say, you know, go read your scriptures. You know, like, look, I've already read these already, and I know what it says. And he goes over here, and he, you know, yeah. has a sacrifice, and, and they built an altar. We get all that. But how does that relate to me uh, 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later? But you're, you're right. So the, the ultimate source is God. But when you were... Reading those things, when you're reading what God says, it opens up those, again, a catalyst is the word you use, and, and that catalyst opens up the avenues for the, for the, for the Holy Ghost to speak, for the, the Spirit to come to us and, and open these things to our understanding. Yeah, and that's, I think what you'll hear lots of times in this uh, podcast are people telling stories about just exactly that. When this, the, they were, something about the scriptures, the spirit spoke to them and, and it became real to them and helped them or gave them answers or directed them in this way because this, the reality of the scriptures served as that catalyst to, as you said, get them into the conduit of revelation so that God could, could tell them what they needed. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, and President Benson uh, mentioned years ago, he promised if you read the Book of Mormon every day that, that you would have increased increased peace in your home and yeah and so forth and, and again does does reading that about nephi making a bow does that m make your commute to work better well maybe not necessarily yeah. exactly like that <laughs> unless but you're again, really hungry as you're traveling yeah <laughs> maybe but as you're as you're communing anyway as you're communing through the scriptures in other words and opening the, and receiving that spirit it opens your mind and avenues to other things and I think that's where President Benson was going. Like, look, if we're yeah. spending time in the scriptures, if we're learning the principles, I, I, this, I use this statement all the time. Joseph Smith was once asked, as a mayor of Nauvoo, how does your city run so well? How do you keep such great order? And he said, I teach them correct principles and they govern themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that when we're learning the principles of faith, which is in the scriptures, we're learning the principles, then the application of those principles, whether it's direct related to that or not, the principles become universal to us. Good. The, the principles of honesty and integrity and, and um, uh, you know, um, fairness, all those things will translate whether you're 3,000 years old or if you're born yesterday. Uh, those same principles are going to be the same principles. They don't go out of style. Fairness, understand that you and I are both um, children of God, that kind of thing, those principles don't change. And if you're reading the true, true principles, the pure principles from the scripture, those will translate. 
Uh, I, I agree 100%. Uh, and that's, again, the power of the scriptures. And that's what we want to have happen from this podcast, from studying the scriptures and so on and so on. And I, I, I almost feel like you've created some kind of fun phrases for us here that we can use besides like that, that the scriptures can be a catalyst to our inspiration, but I think we should both uh, commute through the scriptures so that we can commune through the scriptures, right? We should oh, hey. <laughs> uh, do that. Uh, we're having, our, we're commuting uh, our way through the scriptures uh, back to God and, and it allows us to commune with God. So that, that was That's well great. done. I'm yeah. write that down. I, I don't, you know, being a comedian, I, I do sometimes come up with stuff even when I'm not trying to be fun. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, Anyway. Well, that's great. That's totally great. Well, okay. So just before we end off here, um, we've already put in, I don't know, 40 minutes or so in here. Um, we've talked about where the scriptures in the book of Abraham came from and, and where the scriptures in general. So where we're going to go, what our study through this year, uh, come follow me is going to be about the old Testament, but I have one more thing about, and I'd love to get your book. I'm, uh, this, this podcast wasn't a plug for your book necessarily, <laughs> but I am really looking forward to it because I'm, uh, this has always been one that's, been very fascinating to me i loved looking at these these uh these drawings uh and you know the the facsimiles and things and i was really quite bummed when a lot of people were shaken from some of their foundations because some or some or other said oh these are proven to be false and and i don't want to 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 overshadow the, our talk about catalysts and commuting in the scriptures but i do want to talk about the just end off with just kind of some ideas on on these on these drawings what can we learn from these drawings uh the facsimile and what do we do with them now what do i what do i do with those that that great one called the hypocephalus oh and i've heard you talk about this before but explain really quickly what the hypocephalus is all right well maybe we can talk about the facsimiles in general and we'll end on the hypocephalus and it will actually bring us back to the commuting and communing with god and perfect Catalyst that's what i want to do so, let's do that um so this is one of the things that people have a lot of questions about are the facsimiles, right? And uh, especially because um, the question that people tend to naturally have is, is the, does what Joseph Smith say the facsimiles or these Egyptian drawings, right? Uh, what it, Joseph Smith says what they mean, does that match what the ancient Egyptians would have said they meant? Right. And, right. and again, this is people trying to either confirm their belief in Joseph Smith or disprove Joseph Smith. Um, and they don't realize that even that question is probably the wrong question. Uh, well, it is the wrong question for sure, but, but maybe in a couple of different ways. So first of all, there's an assumption there that Joseph Smith is telling us what any ancient uh, Egyptian would have thought these meant. And we don't know that's what he's trying to tell us. There are a number of other possibilities. So for example, he could be telling us what uh, ancient Jews would have thought these meant, right? So ancient uh, Jews took Egyptian elements of culture, uh, drawings or uh, stories and things, and they, they reinterpreted them and gave them their own meaning. The Savior did that in a parable where he takes a typical Egyptian story and he changes it to instead of being uh, the, the poor person after death being in Osiris's bosom, he changes it to being in Abraham's bosom. Um, and, and we find actually there that a number of times, uh, Jews and Egyptians substitute Abraham and Osiris. They, they kind of move them back and forth. Uh, Abraham was an important figure, uh, for Jews. And as the Egyptians became familiar with them, then, then we see the substitution back and forth. But anyway, maybe Joseph Smith is telling us how some ancient Jews would have interpreted these drawings, or maybe he's telling us something else. So this brings us to another really intriguing story that we need to talk about the papyri that Joseph Smith owns is uh, owned was originally owned and commissioned by a priest that lived in Thebes in about 200 BC. His name is Hor, or Horus is the Greek version of his name. Um, and and Hor is a priest that serves in Thebes, and he has this facsimile, has facsimile one on it. So he's got this role that if the missing papyrus uh, theory is correct, and if it is on the same role as facsimile one, then he's the one that owns the Book of Abraham. And we'd ask ourselves, why would he want something from Abraham? I've actually been doing a lot of research about Hor recently and, and his interactions with uh, his temple service and this drawing and text that he may be interested in. Uh, been, in fact, I spent about three hours yesterday uh, refining an article that has been accepted for a publication in an Egyptological journal. They just wanted me to add a few more sources and, and, and so on. And as I did it, I found yeah, there's more and more and more here. This makes more and more sense. So I've been adding it. Um, and it, it becomes clear that this is a priest who uh, was involved in uh, rituals that had to do with creation, 
that had to do with uh, saving people from uh, being killed by bad forces uh, and so on. And that's interesting because both of those stories are in the book of Abraham, right? So this is a priest who would be interested in a text that has stories like that. We've also learned, and I've published this both in Egyptological and LDS sources, um, that there were priests at this time who were interested in Jewish religious sources. So that seems weird to us as monotheists, because if I worship Jehovah, then I don't worship other gods. But if you're a polytheist and you worship hundreds of gods, as the Egyptians did, and you find out about other gods, and they're just learning the Greeks are controlling the country at this time in 200 BC. They're learning about tons of Greek gods. There's also a huge Egyptian presence. I mean, sorry, of course, there's an Egyptian presence in Egypt. There's a huge <laughs> Jewish presence in Egypt, and, uh, and they're learning about not only Jehovah, but all of these prophets. Um, and we know they were collecting stories of Mesopotamian, Greek, and Jewish religious stories and incorporating them into their own religious rituals. So again, that seems weird to us because we're monotheists. But if you are an Egyptian and you incorporate Horus into a religious ritual because Horus was stung by a scorpion and you want to be protected from scorpion bites like Horus was, then that makes sense. And then you meet some Greek figures and some Jewish figures who had certain experiences that you want to also make part of you, then you incorporate them into your religious spells. So for example, we've found religious spells um, that say, if you want to learn the name of God on a high mountain, become like Moses, who learns the name of God on a high mountain. And he did, right? So th they're familiar with these stories and they become the two figures so that they use the most are Abraham and Moses. Besides Jehovah, the two non-divine figures they use the most are, are Abraham and Moses. They're absolutely cultivating stories of Abraham and Moses, some that are in the Bible, some that aren't in the Bible, and they're incorporating them into their religious life and spells. And, and so these are things that are found in Egypt referencing yes. Abraham and Moses. And what yeah. time period would these pieces have been? So the, the earliest we have attestations of are about 150 BC and uh, in Thebes specifically. And so, and they're by priests in Thebes in 150 BC. So typically when you have enough that there are preserved and, and we can find them years later, then you can assume that these things were happening sometime before that. So then your natural assumption is, well, then they were doing it by at least 200 BC, which happens to be when Hor, the priest that, owns these papyri, is a priest in Thebes. Uh, and so all of this just makes perfect sense, right? I, I get more and more, as I study it Egyptologically, I get more and more why this person would have been interested in the Book of Abraham. Now, again, I don't know for sure that the Book of Abraham's on this text that he owns, but I'm starting to lean more and more that way, mostly because it makes so much sense for this guy to have this text, right? And then to also interpret typical Egyptian drawings slightly differently because he and some of his, his contemporaries are imbuing both e a mixture of Egyptian and Jewish religious thought on these drawings, right? So there's a part of me that wonders if he is not using this drawing in a way that it would work for both the Book of Breathings and the Book of Abraham. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I remember that same discussion I talked about Hugh Nibley. I asked him about this. Uh, because I also had a religion teacher um, at BYU whose name was Doug Bassett. And he said oh, one yeah. time that you can have, you remember no, no Doug Bassett? Yeah. 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 Well, he's a great guy. And I remember him saying, Isaiah had a way of doing this. He would talk about a, a, a someone who had been in the past, a, a past king or whatever. He would talk about that as a metaphor for today, what was happening in his day, and also refer to things that were happening in the future. So yes. he could refer to three different time frames in one passage. Or, and I, or often I, more than three. Yeah, like, right, right. Yeah, sometimes a dozen. Jehoshaphat doing that or whatever. And then it applied to all these things at one time and yes. all these different symbols that goes through. And so I asked Hunibli uh, about that. And he said, oh, yeah, of course. And, he, you know, if you've ever been around Hunibli, he talks very fast. And he would move around his library and he'd pull out this book and hand me this. And I would try to remember what he was talking about. And he moved. Anyway, it was so much fun. But yeah. but. The, the, all the scriptures are symbols and metaphors for so many things. And again, it's, yes. it's, it's talking about the principles. It's not, the, it's not always the actual place. It's not actually uh, always about Canaan or whatever. It's, it's things that are principles that apply. What are the people learning in that, that period? And how does it apply to God? And again, I go back to 
um, what uh, President Eyring said that he wrote in his journal, he was told long ago to look for the hand of God in his daily life. And he wrote those things in his journal for all that time, for those many 30, 40 years, whatever. Which and is I think, a fantastic thing to do. Yeah. I, oh, yeah, for sure. And that's yeah. the scriptures. Where's the hand of God in these people's lives? And where does yeah. it happen? So learn the principles, and govern yourself. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, with this specific drawing, facsimile one, uh, there are a couple of things. That's part of what I'm writing about in this Egyptological ar uh, article. I'm saying here are the things that are kind of normal about this drawing. And here are the things that are completely unique or almost completely unique. And there's some of both. And here's how they, they tie in well with the religious priestly service that Hor was, was doing, which also ties in really well with the Book of Abraham. Um, and, I, and I even say in this article, uh, this does have implications for my religious beliefs, and I'll, I'll deal with that in a religious venue, but in this Egyptological venue, I'm just going to deal with the Egyptological aspects. But I suspect that he uh, and uh, he's, he's using these drawings in a way that they can work for both the Book of Abraham and the Book of Breathing. So maybe Joseph Smith is telling us not how uh, ancient Egyptians would have interpreted this, the average ancient Egyptian, but he might be telling us this is how this specific group that and including maybe this specific priest would have interpreted this drawing based on the Abraham elements. Um, but he may be telling us really, this is just how uh, we should interpret it today, regardless of how anyone mm -hmm. in the ancient world would have interpreted it. This is what we need to get out of it. And it's possible. He's telling us that some ancient Egyptians, like an average ancient Egyptian would have seen it this way. So that leads us to a, a third problem or fourth or fifth. I don't know where we are in the number <laughs> um, uh, problem with this assumption. And that is that we say, okay, we want to know how Joseph Smith, what Joseph Smith says compares with what the ancient Egyptians would have said. The problem is there are no ancient Egyptians around. They're all dead. Turns out they're, they're ancient, right? So, um, so what we do is we compare it with what Egyptologists say. But the difficulty is that as Egyptologists, and I'm speaking as, as a, an Egyptologist who's active in, in the discipline and, and uh, I think fairly well respected in the discipline, we struggle with interpreting these. We really struggle with it. So I'll just give you one example. Um, the kind of drawing that facsimile two is, you mentioned this already, it's called a hypocephalus. Um, mm -hmm. There are lots of different hypocephali. They're kind of close to what we have. Um, and there is a number of figures that are, are uh, present in lots of different hypocephali. And even among Egyptologists, we haven't been able to agree who those figures or those characters are and, and what the symbolism is. So you've gotten kind of two main camps. Some people say this this is who they are, and these are the symbols, and others say, no, it's these things. And so even among those Egyptologists, we couldn't agree. But then my, my friend and colleague at BYU, Jungi, who is a great Egyptologist and really knows this stuff well, and he's become one of the leading experts in the world on facsimiles, or I'm sorry, not on facsimiles, on hypocephali. Hypocephali, yeah. Uh, but also on facsimiles, but, but on hypocephali. And he finally found one where the ancient Egyptians labeled these characters. Oh, that's awesome. A Rosetta and, Stone, basically. Yeah, yeah. And well, for that time period, and that's the other thing is we need to recognize that the at different place and at different time, they would have get drawn different meanings out of the same characters and symbols. And that's true in Egypt over different places, they get different meanings out of them. And certainly, I mean, over the 3000 year period, they get different meanings out of them. Right. But he found one that's kind of contemporary with the one we have. And the majority of the time, what Egyptologists had been saying about them did not match what the Egyptians said about them when we could find the Egyptians telling us what they said about them, right? We were just oh. wrong most of the time. So I, I find it kind of, uh, it's funny in some ways, but really it's sad in other ways. I know people who have left the church, who have lost their faith, that have been revealed to them by, by God through the Holy Ghost, that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And then they read someone who said, well, this is what this drawing means Egyptologically. And this is what Joseph Smith said it meant, and they don't match. And so they decided Joseph Smith wasn't a prophet and they lost their faith, which is ridiculous when we realize, first of all, we don't know what Joseph Smith was trying to tell us, if that's a comparison we should be making. And second, the Egyptologists, we can demonstrate, we Egyptologists are frequently wrong about the exact thing <laughs> that they're losing their faith over. It's really kind of sad, I think. Well, that's kind of why I brought it up. I didn't want to sit in on a down note, but but I did want to talk about, you know, some people that might have questions about that. And let's yeah. do this. Let's, let's talk about, uh, let's do it another podcast. We're already at about an hour here. And, and we've talked about the, where, where the scripture or where the book of Abraham came from and kind of generally where some of the scriptures come from. 
let's end on that. But let's talk again. Of course, well, there's one symbol I want to come sure. back to. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, no, to end back. on if that's okay. But but that's we, right. well, you can keep going. No, no, no. All right. Um, and I will say there are lots of things that do seem to match up Egyptologically, and I, I deal with some of those in my book and other publications, and so do people like Michael Rhodes and John Gee and, and Stephen Smoot and others. But there's a great resource called pearlofgreatpricecentral.org that oh, you can wow. go to, uh, or, uh, or bookofabraham.org. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll try and remember to put those in the descriptions, uh, down below where we'll also take Pearl of Great Price org and then, and Pearl of Great Price Central dot org. Central. Pearl of Great Price Central Yeah. Make sure you put those in the, in the description box below because I'd love to go check those out myself and I'm sure people are watching. Yeah. Uh, all three of them would want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Book of Abraham.org, Pearl of Great Price Central.org. So yeah. So you, you and me and one other person, but anyway, um, uh, but let's, let's end on this. One of the great symbols. So facsimile two is worth just spending an hour on just on itself. But, um, but remember that uh, I'll just say it briefly. Facsimile two is about a journey, leaving God's presence and getting back to God's presence from an Egyptological or a, a religious perspective. It, it begins and ends from an Egyptological perspective with Amun Ra, and and comes back to him. Uh, and then we would equate that with God beginning, leaving God and coming back to God. So you uh, towards the end of the journey. As you're getting close to getting back to God's presence, you've got this figure down at the bottom. I think it's figure seven. Um, but Joseph Smith interprets this as, as Abraham learning key words through the Holy Ghost, that being revealed to him through the Holy Ghost. And I, I think that ties in so well with what we were talking about. In order to return to be with God, one of the necessary things is to learn light and truth from the Holy Ghost. You have to have that catalyst, right? That yes. something that serves as a catalyst so that then on your commute to be with God again, you commune with God. And that will give you the, the, both the information and the power that you need to return to be with God again. And so this whole idea of the catalyst and communing and commuting uh, to be with God is encapsulated, not just in the book of Abraham, which it is in the text of the book of Abraham, fantastic doctrines about our relationship with God in the text of the book of Abraham. But also, um, this uh, in facsimile too, this idea that we need to commune with oh, God. Yeah, yeah let's let's uh, let's do some more on this. And of course, this is my thing. Uh, the facsimiles have fascinated me since I was very little. Thought they were really cool to look at while boring speakers were talking, and I'm like trying to figure out what the Book of Abraham is saying. Uh, but I'd love to talk about just these things. But I, I like again, I'm coming back around to that same catalyst. It seems like that when we're reading the scriptures, we're learning the language of God. And then with learning the language of God, we can then communicate with them through the Holy Ghost. We have to first understand the principles and what that feels like. Good. I agree. I agree. And and so let's talk uh, in a future podcast about the the text of the book of Abraham and the facsimiles and what we can learn from them spiritually so that we're we're becoming all the more native uh, in that language. I'm ready anytime. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get again soon uh, together soon. Um, and, uh, and, and go that I'd like to go through the, the facsimiles and so a little bit more about that. And then what we understand anciently and modernly and modernly. Okay. Anyway, so there's that, but uh, we're yeah, fully really empowered to make up new words here. So. <laughs> I'm going to make up all kinds of phrases, the commute and commute, the commute to yeah. commune. Okay. To be modern. Good. Yeah. Anything right. you want to add right now? And, uh, before nah, we sign thank you. Ah, this was great. I, I really like. Hearing it's been uh, a dream of mine for us to get together and talk on these things. And, and if just you and I listen to this, it'll be great for me because I'm learning lots of great <laughs> stuff and I'm able to, to talk with someone who knows some good things and hopefully we come out with some good understandings. All right. Well, thank you, Lamar. You bet. Well, hey, so any, if any of you who are watching um, or, listening, like and dis- yeah. or listening, yeah, if you're listening, watching, whatever, like and describe, like and subscribe, or and share podcast. Or share whatever comment. If there's a comment section in whatever platform you're looking at, feel free to comment. What do you want us to talk about? What are, you, what are your questions? We will try to get them. Try to keep them constructive. No one wants to read junk. So I mean, you know, if you don't like us, that's okay too. <laughs> but anyway, so do that, and, and hopefully we'll see you again on the scriptures are real. 